Welcome to today's episode of Changing Waters. I'm excited to have Dr. Will Burns here with us today. He's got far too many credentials for me to list, but I will spend a bit of time uh, speaking about what an impressive fellow we have here today. Uh, he has a PhD in International Environmental Law and is a professor of research and founding co-director of the Institute for Carbon Removal Law and Policy at American University. He is also co-chair of the International Environmental Law Committee of the American branch of the International Law Association and previously served as the co-executive director of the Forum for Climate Engineering Assessment and as the director of the Energy Policy and Climate Program at John Hopkins University. Previous to that, he worked in the non-governmental sector for 20 years, including as executive director of the Pacific Center for International Studies, a think tank that focused on implementation of international wildlife treaty regimes, including the Convention on Biological Diversity and International Convention for the Regulation of Whaling. As if those things weren't impressive enough, he also served as founder and editor-in-chief of the Journal of International Wildlife Law and Policy and is the founding editor-in-chief of Case Studies in the Environment. So this is somebody that has deep, deep roots in um, policy and law and carbon removal, the ocean, things that we are all really interested in and that are becoming more and more relevant as time passes. Now, I understand that uh, you had a very serendipitous introduction to the whole concept of uh, carbon removal and how it relates to environmental law and policy. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, uh, thanks for inviting me, Julia. Uh, so I was uh, uh, invited to be a, uh, a teaching fellow for a year at Williams College uh, in uh, about uh, 14 years ago. And I was on the plane and I discovered much to my chagrin that I actually had one more week to teach than I thought for a course. And so I needed one final topic. And so I was casting about in my mind what that should be. And I was waiting to get off the plane and the gentleman next to me had left his newspaper there. And so I was reading it while people were deplaning. And there was a small article on something called climate geoengineering. Uh, and climate geoengineering are all these different approaches to uh, uh, to uh, intervene to uh, protect the climate. So it's things like putting sulfur dioxide in the stratosphere to reflect sunlight away or uh, uh, making clouds brighter or uh, what we're talking about today, which is uh, efforts to remove uh, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And so I was already working in the field of climate change, but not this esoteric new field. And I said, you know, that that seems really interesting for students because it's got elements of, of science and technology, uh, law and politics. There's lots of ethical and justice uh, focused uh, issues associated with potentially doing these on a large scale. I think that'll be cool. And so I, I uh, incorporated into the syllabus and, uh, and then I kind of got hooked. I, uh, I found it a, a fascinating topic. Uh, when I got to Hopkins in Washington, it was, a it had become 
a, a topic of far more interest than it had been in the, in the past, you know, largely out of despair. The fact that we're not getting our act together in terms of reducing our emissions, people start looking at some of these uh, technological uh, approaches to, uh, to try to help us save our bacon. And so uh, I decided to uh, ultimately form a, a research center with a, a colleague at American University uh, to uh, to look at these issues. And, uh, you know, like I said, 14 years later, here I am. Wow, that's incredible. And uh, you were definitely arriving at the, the very early cusp of what has now become a really burgeoning and uh, often researched and, and spoken about the field, although uh, at least for those of us working in climate change. Uh, it's also something that's very controversial, and you'll find that there are strong opinions on both ends, as I'm sure you've seen. Yes. Uh, you know, so much of it is seemingly interventionist, as you're saying, and um, many people want to believe that, that we can get where we need to simply by stopping the use of fossil fuels and, you know, kind of doing a, a wake-up call, as, uh, as so many of us believe. But at this point, the reports that are coming out indicate that it will take some of these uh, seemingly dramatic and drastic interventions in order for us to reach our climate goals and to avoid, you know, real climate disaster. Um, what are some examples of, um, of approaches that you think are gaining in popularity? Yeah. So let, let me just initially frame it by telling, uh, telling you how much we think we might have to do. You know, as you pointed out, we've now reached a point, uh, largely because my generation and our generation before that didn't get their act together in terms of reducing emissions, that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says that now to meet the Paris objectives, the 1.5C or even the 2 we not only need to uh, massively uh, increase uh, our decarbonization of, of the economy, substantially uh, increase the amount that, we're, uh, that we should be reducing emissions uh, annually, but we also need to be taking substantial amounts of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And when I mean substantial, many of the studies indicate that by the time we get to the latter part of this century, we need to be removing somewhere between 15 to 20 billion tons of CO2 from the atmosphere, in addition to all the mitigation, and overall, maybe as much as a thousand uh, billion tons. And to put that in perspective, that's equivalent to about 25 years of, of current uh, emissions. Now, how do we get there? Well, there's a, a a raft of potential what we call carbon removal or negative emissions uh, technologies that could help us get there. One is pretty familiar to most people. It's it's planting trees, afforestation and reforestation. Uh, and uh, it, it's something we've done all along. There's increasing discussion of trying to, uh, to substantially escalate uh, uh, this approach. Uh, but there's sustainability limitations to doing this. If you start talking about planting uh, 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 trees uh, to, that would be the equivalent of, of the size of the African continent, for example, which is what some people believe we need to do to, uh, uh, to meet uh, uh, these objectives, uh, you're probably 
uh, taking our large swaths of, of savannas and prairie grasslands, for example, that uh, have critical biodiversity uh, uh, um, uh, aspects to them. Uh, you're likely expelling lots of people who rely on land for, for their livelihoods, uh, requires large amounts of water and fertilizer. And so increasingly, uh, scientists believe that at a sustainable level, maybe we could sequester a couple uh, billion uh, tons of CO2 a year by increasing our use of, of, of tree planting. So that's one. Uh, a second one that uh, it was identified by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in its fifth assessment report, so the report right before this one, is something called bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. And this uh, involves the use of bioenergy feedstocks to produce energy. Uh, this could be trees, can be dedicated energy crops such as miscanthus, uh, it can be residues from crops, it can be algae, uh, and then you burn uh, those, uh, those bioenergy feedstocks to produce heat or to generate electricity or for fuels, and then you capture the CO2 at the flue stack uh, using a process called carbon capture and storage, and then you uh, ship that carbon for storage uh, underground in things such as sailing aquifers or abandoned coal mine seams or in the oceans, or you seek to to use that CO2 for things like high strength materials or or fuels or or or, or other kinds of chemicals. Uh, Again, BECs can have its limitations. If you want to escalate the use of BECs to anywhere above 3 billion tons of carbon sequestration a year, you start to hit some real limitations. First of all, you might have to divert as much as a third of all uh, current uh, food crops uh, to dedicated energy crops. And if you do that, you could massively increase food prices for some of the most vulnerable people in the world. Uh, if you did it at that scale, you might require as much water as all the water that we currently use for irrigation on Earth. Okay, um, You also might need about 50% of all the nitrogen fertilizer that we currently use on Earth. And so we're not going to stop using the fertilizer we are now. So we'd have to massively increase the use of, of a nitrogen fertilizer. And that has clear limitations in terms of its uh, environmental implications. So these days, when we talk about BECs and its sustainability, we're probably looking at maybe, again, a couple of, of a billion tons a year, right? So now we start casting around saying, what else could we do? And so very quickly, some of the other approaches are something called enhanced mineral weathering. It's the idea that there's a natural process in which silicate materials, such as olivine uh, on Earth, uh, when they weather, take up CO2 and ultimately take up all the CO2 that's produced on Earth and cycle it through a system that converts it to carbonates and bicarbonates that ultimately wash into the world's oceans, end up at the bottom of the oceans, and are stored for thousands of years. Uh, enhanced mineral weathering is an idea to grind up a lot of these kind of, of materials, spread them on Earth, and accelerate that process massively and potentially sequestering maybe again a, a gigaton, maybe a couple gigatons of CO2. Um, but there's high energy costs associated with it. Uh, there might be some environmental implications associated with fine particulates uh, because these have to be ground up to very fine levels. Uh, there's a lot of energy requirements. 
Um, another approach we're looking at is something called direct air capture. It's construction of what we call artificial trees that uh, would have uh, huge filtration systems in them. And we would force uh, ambient air into those systems. The filtration systems, which use things like calcium hydroxide or lye, would separate out the CO2. And then we, again, we could pressurize that CO2 in a liquid form and, and, and transport it uh, for, for storage. Uh, but right now, that's a very expensive uh, system. Uh, some estimate it might cost five, $600 or more a ton uh, to, of captured CO2. Uh, but there's pilot projects now that are hopefully going to reduce the cost, but it, it, it's uncertain. And then... Uh, the other thing that we're looking at are ocean-based uh, approaches. Uh, so we're looking at things like ocean iron fertilization, the idea that there's areas of the oceans that have a shortage of iron, and that if we were to seed those areas with iron, it would result in more phytoplankton production. And phytoplankton uh, take up CO2, about half of all the CO2 uh, that's taken up in the photosynthetic process is taken up by phytoplankton. This would try to increase that. And then when the phytoplankton died, they would take some of the CO2 with them to the bottom of, of the oceans. Uh, we've done some experiments with this, however, and we found that a lot of the phytoplankton are consumed immediately at the surface by other species. And ultimately the CO2 is released. Uh, there's also risks associated with putting iron in sensitive ocean ecosystems, as you can imagine. Uh, that includes the fact that you don't know what kind of phytoplankton get produced when you do that. And if you got some species that were not palatable to zooplankton in the areas, you could get a, a biological trophic cascade and, and really mess up those ecosystems. Uh, you could have, uh, when you get phytoplankton production in one area, it could rob areas downstream of nutrients. And so it could affect the interests of, of, of fishers, for example, in, in other areas. And so it's, it's something else that needs to be assessed. Another approach that we're looking at is, is called enhanced ocean alkalization. The idea is to put things such as uh, limestone or olivine, again, similar to what we were talking about on land, but in the oceans, uh, you increase alkalinity, you alter uh, 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 ocean chemistry, and the CO2 is converted to uh, carbonates, again, uh, potentially ending up at the bottom of the oceans, and also potentially giving you the co-benefit of addressing ocean acidification. Uh, but we don't know much about this. This is in experimental stages. Uh, it, it could have high cost. Uh, it could result in releases of lots of uh, of metals that we're afraid of um, uh, in the oceans, uh, it could uh, ultimately create alkalosis for some species that couldn't quickly adjust to changes in, in alkalinity. So um, uh, early stages for, for that one. And then the last one we're looking at is blue carbon. Uh, everything from enhancing uh, uh, mangroves and seagrasses uh, through uh, things like macroalgae, such as kelp, uh, that uh, could at very large scales take up substantial amounts of, of carbon dioxide. Uh, but again, something that we need to assess, uh, if you're putting huge amounts of kelp in the ocean, for example, and certain species feed on that kelp, uh, would they crowd out other species? Would it alter uh, the assemblage of the ecosystems? Uh, if you were putting large amounts of kelp out in buoys, for example, would it result in, in uh, marine mammal entanglements, ship strikes, uh, endangered species, I mean, uh, uh, 
certain kinds of uh, species, invasive species, hitching a ride on those buoys and ending up in coastal areas. Uh, there's a lot of, of additional research that we need in that context also. Uh, but that in a nutshell are some of the things we're looking at. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify that when it comes to the phytoplankton and the various aspects of blue carbon, mangroves, seagrass, kelp, etc., they're just operating like any other photosynthesizing plant, right? So um, absorbing carbon dioxide and releasing oxygen. So phytoplankton uh, are responsible for a huge amount of the oxygen that we breathe all over the planet. Uh, but part of the issue uh, is that how, what does it mean to sequester that carbon and how do we ensure that it, that it really is gone for good? You know, the, the idea is usually that it ends up in the deep ocean waters, as you mentioned, but uh, some of them buried in the sediment and uh, other projects that are looking at, at blue carbon um, have other methods that they, including, as you said, converting them to fuel. But what does it really mean for that carbon to be sequestered and how long does it need to be sequestered is something that's, that's a lot of debate around as well. Yep, absolutely. Um, I did want to clarify when you were putting in perspective the amount of carbon removal that we need to uh, to achieve by the end of the century. When you said 25 years worth of emissions, you meant worldwide collectively, right? That's correct. We're, we're at about, you know, 44, 45 um, uh, uh, gigatons of CO2 annually. And so we're talking about maybe having to suck out about a thousand uh, billion tons uh, ultimately. So somewhere around, you know, 25 years of, of our collective global emissions. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's scary. <laughs> it's quite the challenge. <laughs> yes, yeah. it, yes, it is. <laughs> it's a shame we got, got to this place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's good to see that, that so many researchers are plunging wholeheartedly into this, but because there is such a short amount of time in which we have to act, it also means that we may have to take some risks that uh, many people would prefer to avoid, uh, where we can't do the usual uh, scientific process of small-scale pilots gradually scaling up to, um, you know, the kind of levels that, that are appropriate. We may have to move faster than that in order to bring these things to fruition in a time that uh, that will have a meaningful effect. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's frightening, and again, it's frustrating. We we shouldn't we shouldn't really have been at this place. If we had really started in you know in the 1980s uh, when when like the Carter administration was looking in earnest at addressing climate change, and other countries were, you know, we might find ourselves now at a point where we'd either not need to be looking to use these approaches or really looking at them. Uh, at a very small scale to kind of mop up some of the really kind of recalcitrant emissions that you get from things like cement, for example. Uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right. We we didn't do that. And so now uh, we're, we're talking about potentially utilizing these at a really large scale and maybe having to accelerate uh, the process of, of assessment and cut corners. And, you know, that's that's unfortunate, but it is it is the reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unintended unintended consequences um, are just quite likely to occur from from many of these things, and it's just very very difficult to predict. We first became interested here at Global Ocean Health uh, in these issues when we were, you know, so engaged in the issue of ocean acidification and started learning about you know the potential mitigation involved in using bicarbonates uh, to simultaneously sequester carbon and alkalinize the ocean. But um, having done a literature study, there's very little information about what might occur if we do attempt that kind of alkalization in the ocean. We just don't know. No, we just don't know. A lot of it is is lab-based. Uh, very little in terms of, you know, mesocosms or field research uh, and very little funding uh, to uh, to facilitate it. Mm-hmm. And then with the iron fertilization, when um, we've already seen that when you have large blooms of, of plankton, it can sometimes cause hypoxia where all of the oxygen is uh, sucked out of the the water and we have large fish die-offs or harmful algal blooms. Uh, yeah, they can. They yep, can absolutely, have... <laughs> absolutely, and, and 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 not to mention the fact, of course, when you have hypoxic environments, you produce lots of nitrous oxides and methane, right? So far more potent sort of greenhouse gases, and so you know, again. I have to say, of of all of the ocean ones, uh, that's the one that that I find the uh, the least desirable, even to pursue the research further. I just, in my opinion, I think we know enough about that one to say that that's just not going to be ready for prime time. Yeah, yeah. Um, there have been some some early experiments that were perhaps not run well, but they they at least gave us enough information to know that it's probably not something we want to pursue further. Um, so I know that uh, you are going to have the first annual conference on carbon removal law and policy coming up in a few weeks here on September 21st and 22nd. And uh, I think most of our listeners know that the ocean is already the world's largest carbon sink, and that's why so many of these approaches do focus on the ocean uh, as a solution for further carbon dioxide removal and sequestration. And so I understand that this conference also, uh, being the first one, will focus largely on uh, marine carbon removal. Is that right? Yeah, and and we're 
we're looking at uh, at the legal aspects of this, right? Because you know, as we as we've already discussed, some of these approaches could have some clear benefits in in addressing climate change, but there's also uh, risks and trade-offs. And in those kind of cases where there may be transboundary impacts or there may be o- uh, impacts in the global commons, it's really important to have the world community. Uh, both weigh in on these things and also to scrutinize uh, efforts that are predominantly being driven in the private sector increasingly, right? Uh, I mean, you know, I think there's a role for the private sector in this, in the sense that it can provide capital and the profit motive, you know, sometimes produces remarkable technological breakthroughs, right? But at the same time, uh, the interests of companies obviously are not always the interests of society at large or individual countries, right? And so uh, we need uh, 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 the public sector side uh, to uh, uh, to really uh, scrutinize, uh, monitor, and 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 regulate uh, these approaches. And so the conference will focus on how we would regulate some of these things at the at the domestic level and how we'd regulate them at the international level, both in terms of the research and the potential deployment of these approaches. And we've got some 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 great people, and we hope uh, a lot of, of your listeners will, will join us because it's really important to have perspectives of ocean stakeholders and those that have worked on ocean uh, policy issues as long as I know many of your listeners have. Yeah, um, there are so many people that rely on the ocean to make their livelihoods, whether that's from fishing or um, shellfish farming or um, shipping, or they just love the ocean and all the recreation and beauty and abundant life that it offers. And they all need to be a part of this discussion and helping craft and shape what kind of regulations there are around this, because if we leave it up to um, merely the science or uh, field or merely um, those that are looking to make a profit potentially, then we probably won't be too happy with what we end up with. <laughs> yep, that's a fa- <laughs> fair bet. <laughs> um, so I will definitely include uh, the link to register for the conference, but also if you just Google uh conference on carbon removal law and policy. I know the link pops up right there. So um, I want to make sure that people can join you. Uh, Thank you. I understand that you have several interesting um, panels, including some companies that already have some real world experience in dealing with various government and state agencies uh, sharing their experiences and lessons learned, as well as uh, examining in other aspects of the conference some of the social justice that might come into it. Uh, so I th- it looks to be quite fascinating. What are what are you most excited about? Yeah, I I'm I'm excited about <laughs> it all. Uh, but you know I'm kind of, I'm kind of a geek <laughs> on this stuff. Uh, but but I I think it'll be interesting to hear the perspectives of 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 private companies that are working on these issues. We've got somebody from Running Tide, which is uh, engaged in in kelp farming. And we have somebody from Project Vesta that's looking to 
put olivine on beaches and and uh, enhance the the weathering process through the you know the abrasion that occurs in the in in the in the in the tidal properties in those areas. Um, I'm also excited about uh, discussions of where international law is right now in this and what what gaps we have. Uh, and and I'm excited about the role of public deliberation, right? You mentioned stakeholders. And as you know, it's a little trickier uh, it, when you think, try to think about who are the stakeholders, right? Uh, on it, When you deal with, with ocean interventions of this nature, right? It's different than what happens if you're gonna put a uh, incinerator in a, in a local community, right? It's a, it's a potentially far broader net you're casting and you know how do you identify those stakeholders uh, with with ocean interventions how do you ensure they have a real voice in this and and what does a real voice mean at the end of the day is it a veto over these projects or uh, simply providing uh, you know input um, those are all interesting questions right and and how do you ensure those that might be disproportionately impacted by these uh, have a voice, right? May benefit the world community as a whole, but if it potentially undermines the interests of of an indigenous fishers, for example, in a, in a certain area, how do you deal with that in a way that's that's equitable and, and just? And uh, and so we have a, an entire panel that'll look at some of those issues that I think will be quite interesting given who the speakers are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even just the challenge of identifying what the impacts are. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, things happen in fisheries uh, that we can't explain. And so it might be tempting to point the finger at a new project that arrived, but it may well have to do with, in fact, the effects of climate change. Uh, so... It'll be interesting to see how all of that is uh, is coped with, and so I'm excited to see that that you guys are are taking a look at some of these issues, as well as uh, some of the various greater implications uh, as far as the Paris Agreement and the Convention on Biological Diversity that all might come into play as we make changes to ocean waters that. Uh, that are already feeding, you know, four billion people on the on the earth, and and responsible for a huge amount of economic activity. So, um, I thank you for uh, for taking a look at this and and spreading the word, because I think that people are not really aware that they need to be engaged in in this talk in uh, in these discussions. I, one of our executive directors, Brad's favorite expressions is to say that if you're not at the table, you're on it, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's absolutely true. And, and I have to say these carbon removal approaches, even a couple of years ago, were, were far more kind of in the realm of the, of the specul speculative or, or theoretical and then in the last year, especially, there's just been a massive increase in interest, uh, including in a lot of cases, ocean-based approaches. And so, you know, if if people in the past thought they could kind of uh, lay back for a while and and 
and wait and see how it developed. Uh, this is the time to, to, to pull the chair up at the table because things are, things are accelerating uh, for better or worse. And so you want to be in the mix. They really are. Um, just a couple of years ago, I remember in uh, December 2019, we put out a report on some of these uh, new uh, carbon dioxide removal projects and um, it was all very cutting edge and, and as you said, esoteric at the time, even, even just two years ago. And now it is becoming much, much more widespread and you're seeing a lot more activity uh, in all sectors from um, government to private to the non-governmental organization. They're all engaged in this and everyone's talking about it. So um, I think that part of that is some of the new reports, particularly from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, indicating that we are beyond the point of uh, no return, that even if through some miracle we all stopped using fossil fuels today, which you know is is far beyond any anybody's hope or belief. It still wouldn't be enough, um, and you really put that in perspective with the with the numbers he quoted um, to try to remove twenty five years worth of of global collective emissions. Um, it's just mind boggling, and when you think about those numbers, it's really hard to wrap your mind around it. So. Um, it is something that it's accelerating quickly, and it's important that we think about the policy and law issues of it. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask you about is I know that there's a tax code that's already in place that's um, related to CCS, carbon capture and sequestration, uh, 45Q. What can you tell me about that? Yeah, so... 45Q uh, was a, uh, a tax provision that was established in uh, 2008 that provides a, uh, a credit for those that engage in carbon sequestration. So the idea obviously was to try to drive uh, 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 this, this, this market, especially at early stages, and try to decrease costs uh, and to reflect the fact that, you know, we don't really have a social cost of carbon. So the only way we're going to provide incentives for people to do this stuff is to provide them with tax credits. And then in 2018, uh, the uh, credit was uh, broadened and extended. So originally, the credit only provided uh, 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 a, a tax credit for uh, sequestration of, of carbon in, in, in carbon capture and sequestration uh, facilities. So capturing carbon at the, at the flu stack, like at a coal-fired power plant. Uh, in 2018, it was extended to uh, direct air capture facilities, the, one of the technologies that we talked about before. And the way it works is if you uh, uh, capture carbon and you uh, 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 store it full stop, uh, you can get a, a, a $50 per ton uh, credit for, uh, for doing so. If instead you capture the carbon, uh, either in direct air capture or carbon capture and sequestration, and you use it for something called enhanced oil recovery, uh, you can get $35 per credit. 
And what enhanced oil recovery is, is that it's injecting CO2 into uh, uh, oil fields, uh, which can facilitate in oil fields that are fairly depleted, uh, pulling up more of the oil from that reservoir. And so the idea is, is that there's money to be made by pulling that oil up. And so people will engage in, uh, in using CO2 to do that. And then the CO2 that's injected uh, into those uh, uh, into those areas uh, can be can be stored uh, underground. Uh, now, why is 45Q controversial? There's a couple of reasons. One, uh, as you can probably imagine, there's some people that find it counterintuitive that uh, that uh, this is being billed as a climate policy, but you can get credit for injecting CO2 that allows you to drop more oil to uh, to be burned. Right and and its associated carbon dioxide. The argument that's made to counter that is that there's a there's virtually an unlimited amount of oil in the world. Right, oil is is a fungible product, and so if you didn't pull up oil via enhanced oil recovery, you'd simply get the oil from somewhere else in the world, but you wouldn't get the benefit of at least storing the CO2. Uh, that was injected in pulling that oil up, right? And so there's some life cycle assessments that say that on balance, you're still getting a, a net benefit in terms of carbon dioxide emissions. Not everybody believes that. Some people also believe that this just helps uh, carbon lock-in uh, be extended for a longer period of time. And so uh, there's a controversy associated with it. The other controversy that's associated with 45Q is that the regulation of it is not as stringent as some people believe that it should be. And uh, Senator Bob Menendez from New Jersey uh, uh, about a year ago uh, 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 issued a report uh, based on an audit by the IRS that indicated that in uh, uh, in the vast majority of cases uh, where companies, and these were primarily oil companies, were getting uh, tax credits, um, uh, the vast majority of them had not uh, uh, complied with requirements of reporting and monitoring and verification that CO2 was actually being sequestered, but they had captured, uh, uh, no pun intended, they had captured about a billion dollars of our tax money uh, uh, in, in under 45Q. And so uh, there's many that believe uh, that, uh, that the oil industry is reaping benefits, but not proving that they're actually sequestering CO2 uh, in, in, in this process. And those are the primary uh, controversies associated with uh, 45Q. Okay, thank you. Um, what do you think about it? Do you think that... Um a good amount of legitimate opportunities are created and taking advantage of it, or that it may be uh, leaning more heavily to the advantage of fossil fuel companies. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm okay if at the end of the day, fossil fuel companies make money off of doing this if we get sequestration of carbon, right? Uh, it, you know, until the fossil fuel companies disappear, they are uh, one of the primary potential utilizers of CO2 and have an incentive to try to inject CO2 to, to pull more oil up. Um, I also think there probably are arguments to be made that, that 
they, we would get oil elsewhere uh, in, in, anyway. And so we might as well try to get the benefit of injecting some of the CO2 in the ground to, to pull oil up. But um, I am squeamish by the fact that, that verification and monitoring seems to be wholly inadequate. And I'm certainly, you know, <laughs> one of the few times I'd quote Ronald Reagan, but, you know, trust but verify, right? Uh, I mean, we, we've really got to be clear uh, that if we're providing these tax credits, the oil industry is providing this service. And that's far from clear at this point. And so um, I think 45Q uh, has has merit. Uh, it may help us, as I said, start to uh, expand these operations and bring down their cost, right? Uh, by economies of scale, it'll help us to, in learning by doing this to see you know, if we can adequately store CO2 for long periods of time. And so, you know, there's merits to it, but we've we've got to do it in a way that has integrity. And that's far from clear at this point. Thank you for that clarification. And thank you for taking the time to, to talk with us today. It's been really informative and I'm looking forward to learning more about the uh, policy and law aspects of uh, carbon removal. So I look forward to the conference on September 21st and 22nd. And thanks for all the good work you're doing. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much for inviting me, Julia.